Transmitter device activated. Coordinates set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the pre-crisis DC multiverse and the legacy of the Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and Bronze Age of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. And do you know what? This is the podcast where we do all of those things that Peter just said. Yes. The comic we're doing today is issue 15 of Just League of America, which went on sale on September the 13th, unlucky for some, 1962, and with a cover date of November 1962. And this one's a little bit of a stretch. We're stretching slightly. It's, it's, not, it's, still, it's not a um, standard multiverse story, but you'll see when we get to it. Let's jump straight into the story. Uh, well, first of all, the cover... The cover and the splash page actually are pretty much identical because you've got this big grey stone giant fighting the Justice League and the roll call for this issue is The Atom, Aquaman, Batman, The Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, John Johns, The Martian Manhunter, Snapper Carr, Superman and Wonder Woman. So the gang's pretty much all here. Almost pretty much a full house. Um, I'm reading from the, the reprint of the story, which was in issue 116 of JLA. We'll put the cover of that up on the social so you yes. can get an idea what it looked like. How would you describe the statue? It's very much like, uh, actually it's like one of the old kind of like Marvel monsters from the 50s. He's got the Easter Island face, but he's very much kind of just like big grey statue, sort of a giant. Imagine one of the Easter Island statues come to life with arms and legs with a little sort of coloured loincloth and oh, yes. big sort of stick on googly eyes. <laughs> very much so. You know, so if you can picture that, you're, you're pretty much halfway there. The googly eyes are hilarious, I can't lie. <laughs> so yeah, both the cover and the splash page, I've got the league fighting this thing, and the caption in the splash page reads, They came like mirages out of nowhere. Yet they possess the power to make contact with things and people in our world. Not even the vast powers of the Justice League of America, the greatest group of superheroes ever assembled, could stop them because they were unable to touch these phantom stone creatures. Very exciting. The challenge of the untouchable aliens. I've got to say that I mentioned that reading this from the reprint, and what was sort of habitual at the time was that reprints in the 100 pages would be kind of to soften the blow, I suppose, for the readers because they were getting an old story thrown back at them. They would quite often be introduced, in inverted commas, by characters. So this one, this story, is introduced by Superman and the Atom. And at the top of page 57 of issue 116 of the JLA, we have a Superman, and the colours in his S-shield are reversed. Oh dear. And the Atom, yeah, and the Atom, instead of having a blue sort of mask, sort of helmet, if you want to call it, is, is red, which is um, very similar to another, I know, very similar to another miscolouring of Ray, which we'll, we'll come to again fairly soon, before you know it, in fact, probably. Indeed. So yeah, as Pete says, the splash page is very similar to the cover, and Aquaman is sort of experiencing a bit of distress. He's saying, a stone giant can take hold of us, grab him, and Green Lantern is firing a beam at the, the googly-eyed statue man's head, and he's saying, none of our superpowers do us any good when we can't come in contact with our enemy. Into the story. Ten miles above a national proving ground in the eastern portion of the United States, a strange new weapon called a Sky Fortress is about to be unveiled. And we see in the panel this uh, circular kind of space station thing with a bar across it and a big giant gun on top hovering above the United States, funnily enough. It looks very much like a sort of the sort of free... It looks like a dog toy or something, doesn't it? Does, it does, yeah. Or a free, a free frisbee effort that you frisbee would get, spinner you know, thing, free, yeah. Yeah, free with issue one of Buddy or an issue of Victor <laughs> where they wanted to boost the sales or something. It might have actually been that with Buddy, I think. I think you're not, you're not far wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy is a, a UK comic from the early 80s. Which so. I, read, I read very keenly. I think it ran to about 1982 or something. Get someone to reprint it all, that's what I say. So we, there's a voice, presumably a military voice, coming from the Sky Forces, and the voice is saying, 
The cannon you see is an atomic one, which can fire two nuclear shells a second if necessary. For our test, a missile is being fired from overseas at a secretly selected target in the United States. Relay devices of the Sky Fortress pick up the dummy warhead thousands of miles away as it leaves the launch pad situated on a Pacific Ocean island. And we see a, a missile being launched from this island. Yep, and a voice says, since several countries, friendly and unfriendly, have chosen this day to test their weapons, we decided to demonstrate ours as well. Wow, that says a lot for international politics, doesn't <laughs> yes, it? very, very Silver Age military wackiness there. The, so the mighty cannon automatically aims itself at the oncoming missile and fires its interceptor shell. Yep, and we see the, the recoil and the blast of that happening and inside, and also we see inside the fortress and someone is saying, our new weapon can hit and destroy a fired missile anywhere on Earth within five minutes. It's the most effective deterrent to war ever devised. The invited audience aboard the Sky Fortress watches on a television screen as the interceptor shell contacts the dummy warhead and destroys it. And we see in this panel... It's kind of like NASA Mission Control, the big giant old-fashioned computer banks, the radar screens, and the big giant television that shows the explosion of the missile yeah, on it. Yeah, and there's it's quite, quite a lot of detail packed in it, quite, really, it's quite yeah. a small panel, mm-hmm. and we see, the, see a military person pointing and saying, the advantage of our 10-mile high station over our ground installation is that we can gain precious time in firing at an enemy missile and intercepting it before it reaches its American target. Then, suddenly, the Sky Fortress lurches as its glass dome cracks open, and and we see in this panel there's a kind of like a, a nice Dutch tilt on it, because obviously mm. the Sky Fortress has been hit by something, and everyone's going flying, glasses smashing everywhere, camera, there's a camera flying about the place, and we see this uh, rather handsome chap wearing a blue suit and glasses, catching a very attractive lady with her um, glasses on, wearing a kind of a military intelligence officer outfit. Who could these mm, people possibly be? They look very yeah, familiar. I mean, I mean, it's obvious to us who they are, but what I absolutely love about this, and um, you know, when in our planning stages, Peter and I were talking about whether or not how much detail we were going to get into for this story. And this was the panel, because we we're just going to summarise it, but this was the panel that made me think, no, this is really good. This is a step above the normal Silver Age JLA story for me. So we decided to kind of give it a bit, go into a bit more detail on it. Because basically... It's Clark Kent and Diana Prince, isn't it? Oh, yes. And this is at a stage but, where they don't actually know each other's identities. And, what, as I say, what I like about it is just that the, to the audience, it would be like if you saw Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot, or however, however you pronounce it, you would see them. I mean, we would know who they are. Yeah. But there's nothing to... It's not there's a caption saying, and Daily Planet reporter, Clark uh-huh. Kent. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's the definition of show, don't tell. Yes. It's brilliant. For the Silver Age, it's very subtle. So, yes. So over the page, the mighty Sky Fortress keels over. From its shattered roof, men and women plunge towards the earth far below. And you've got a great left, left-hand left panel of exactly that. Uh, all these people falling out of the yep. of the Sky Fortress, shouting, help, save us! It's fantastic. And then in the next panel, which takes back up to the top of page three, the caption says, Among those hurtling groundward is Clark, Superman Kent, and hands to report the new weapon for the Daily Planet. And we see Superman get changed very quickly, and he's saying to himself, I've got to change into my Superman outfit so swiftly no one will see me. And he's doing the classic folding up the clothes, putting it into his cape pouch. Yep. Which is always really cool. Next panel, we've got, at the very same instant, Lieutenant Diana, Wonder Woman Prince, of military intelligence, has the same idea, and we see exactly that. Diana's changing into her Wonder Woman outfit, and thinking to herself, Merciful Minerva, the Sky Fortress will crash to Earth, and all these people will be killed, unless I do something to save them. So, swooping through the air... 
the Man of Steel rights the Falling Fortress, while the Amazing Amazon rides the jet stream wind currents towards the people plunging groundwards. And Wonder Woman saying, Superman, how did you happen to be here? Superman says, never mind that now, Wonder Woman. While I steady the Sky Fortress, you save those falling people. And as his hands close down on the mighty structure, Superman sees... And Superman thinks to himself, the atomic cannon being wrenched away from the fortress, as if by some invisible force. But even with my supervision, I can't see anything causing it. And that's what we see. We see a bit of distortion around the gun as it's torn away from its moorings. Over the page, while Wonder Woman clasps two falling men, the cannon moves swiftly away in a northwestward direction. And Wonder Woman is doing just that. She's catching people as they're falling out the sky, riding the wind currents. And she's thinking to herself... Neither Superman nor I can spare the time to go after whatever is carrying off the cannon, but it's more important to save lives. There's a nice detail in the background of the panel where we can see Superman holding the fortress up, and he's sort of highlighted so that you can see him, which yeah. is quite, quite smart. So the Man of Steel holds the Sky Fortress on an even keel as the Amazon Princess places her last rescued person aboard it, and Superman says, now to set the fortress safely on Earth. And in the background, we can see the cannon flying away into the distance. And moments later, they have safely put the fortress down on Earth, and Wonder Woman says the cannon is out of sight. And she probably means that as in it's literally out of sight, not in that 60s lingo way of saying that something's really good. <laughs> so Superman says as he's lowering the, the fortress, no matter, my telescopic vision will locate it soon enough and we'll go after it. So at this moment, in a police laboratory in Central City, police scientist Barry Flash Allen is stunned to see and we cut to the inside of uh, Barry's lab. And he's looking out the window and he's saying... A cannon in the sky is slowing down, turning to aim toward our biggest building, the Wilmoth Skyscraper. Now, Pete, say, I must ask you very quickly, you're yes. the Flash expert okay. in this family. The Wilmoth Skyscraper, to your knowledge, is that mentioned in any Flash stories? It has never been mentioned in a Flash story, to my knowledge. Well, Not a single issue of the Flash. There you go, listeners. <laughs> so, so Barry springs into action, he hits his ring, he stores his costume in, it, it pops out, he runs into action and grabs everyone out of the skyscraper and... Gets into safety. Yeah, there's a couple of nice panels of Barry doing just that. We see like paper flying out of the, you know, the office trays and telephones coming off the receiver, and a guy struggling to hold on to his glasses as the flash carries him along. And there's a crowd of people assembled outside as the flash brings out the last person. And suddenly, there's a caption which says, "The city shakes to the terrible fury of the explosion because the cannon has obviously fired on the on the building." One of the people who's sort of cowering on, on the ground says, "Is an enemy attacking us?" And another one saying, "Who's firing that cannon?" So Superman and Wonder Woman speak towards the cannon hoping to find the answer to some of those very questions. And we see the cannon, and it looks like the sort of flames coming off it, and Superman proclaims, I'm using my heat ray vision to blast anyone around the cannon, but I don't seem to be getting anywhere. And Wonder Woman, who's flying in beside him in her invisible jet, says, Try your other supervisions, Superman. In quick succession, the Man of Steel switches to his telescopic vision and his X-ray vision. And Superman proclaims, results negative. And Wonder Woman observes that... The cannon's firing again. So over the page... And it's a bit confusing to work mm -hmm. out what's actually going on going on here. Mm -hmm. So I think I think what we have to... The inference that we have to draw is that the cannon has fired this missile. Because we have a caption here at the top of page six. And the caption says, Uncoiling her magic lasso, the amazing Amazon makes a sensational toss. And we see her basically lassoing a missile. And she says, Great hero, guide my aim. It's, it's a really cool panel because she's standing in the wing of her invisible yeah. jet, which is always cool. And with a mighty flip of her wrist, she sends the lassoed missile flying outward into space. Together, Superman and Wonder Woman grasp the metal cannon. And we see that happening and Superman is shouting, as long as we can't do anything about whatever or whoever is firing this, 
And Wonder Woman completes the sentence by saying, Our only recourse is to destroy the cannon itself. Under the awesome power of their super muscles, the atomic cannon barrel twists as though it were a wedge of taffy candy. And we see exactly yep. that. Wonder Woman's got one end of the cannon and Superman's got the other one and it's being crushed. Yeah, it looks like Superman's, he's got the, the front end of the barrel where the projectiles are going to come out. He's crunching that up and they've twisted it all round about. And then in the next panel, Wonder Woman's still standing on the wing of the plane and Superman's carrying the cannon. Yeah. And they look down and Wonder Woman says, Look below, it's the Flash. And we see the Flash waving up to him and Superman says, I wonder if he knows anything about this mystery. So, the next page, and they all meet up in the first panel, and the Flash says, I'll say this mysterious menace calls for an emergency session of the Justice League. Superman's very emphatic in his agreement, and he says, right, um, this is again a very Silver Age Superman with the barrel chest. Yeah, it's that's interesting. Panel, just like he's, he looks huge. His S logo is massive in that panel. Yeah, yeah it's, it's... and he, even his head, his head looks about twice the size of Barry's. It's really quite funny. <laughs> So they all hit their signal devices and head off to their meeting place. And then we see one of the classic scenes of all the Justice Leaguers out about their normal business as they all receive the emergency signal. We've got Aquaman in the back of a dolphin. We've got Batman flying about in his bat plane. We have got the Atom, who is, as Ray Palmer, in a canoe with uh, Gene Loring. I would imagine that is. It doesn't actually say, but yeah. He's in a, he's in a what? He's in a canoe. A canoe. Yes. Right, and the canoe, the canoe's yellow with a red star on it. I wonder if that's significant somehow. No, the canoe's red with a white star. No, it's not. It's yellow with a red star. It's red with a white star. Look, it's in the reprint. Look, oh. it's in the original. That's fascinating. I wonder how many other... Rick, hang on, hold that up. Let's see, because <laughs> the um, background colouring in the, the first couple of panels is different. The background colouring in the panel of the three of them running towards the camera almost is yellow, uh -huh. whereas yours is blue. Interesting. Because I remember when we talked about one of the Flash issues, we noticed that there had been a couple of similar bits of touching up. So this suggests then maybe this was reprinted possibly from the original art and then recoloured. Could have been. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, you're getting a bit of social history on DC Comics reprints as well as an exciting <laughs> story about cannons flying about and stuff. So Absolutely. anyway, yes, we saw. So we also see Green Arrow on patrol and we see a sort of nice sort of effect coming off his belt buckle and Hal Jordan charging his battery and John Johns, the Martian Manhunter, he's watching a police lineup and there's a couple of very shifty characters in the background of that panel. Absolutely. That's tremendous. Yes. And of course they arrive at their headquarters and Snapper Car arrives at last. Snapper Car, if you don't know, is kind of like the Justice League mascot. He's a hip dude it's, and talks in the 60s lingo and it's very, very grating. Yeah, he talks in the 60s lingo that probably no one ever actually spoke in at all, ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, Snapper's kind of, he's, he's very of his time. Yeah, he's the DC equivalent um, of Rick Jones, really. And there was, that, there was that period in the late 90s when um, Snapper was the star of an Hour Man series. Yes. Shortly after the Hour Man series finished, Snapper started appearing in Young Justice, and there was a brilliant scene that Peter David wrote <laughs> where he had Snapper having a telephone call with a friend of his who he only referred to by his initials of RJ <laughs> and talked about how the, the very similar situation they had with their ex-wife was involved with a cosmic-powered superhero, which is obviously <laughs> Peter David. Yes. Peter David pointing out the similarities between the, the then-Captain Marvel one and Hour Man. We're probably not great. We might talk a bit more about that Iron Man series at some point in the future. I think sure we'll hit on it. So at some anyway, point, yeah. back to the challenge of the untouchable aliens. So Snapper, Snapper is he's being annoying he easily is. straight away because he proclaims greetings, meetings. <laughs> it's a very concerned expression on his face. Superman is saying, "Shh, 
We're getting an important radio message from London and Moscow. So the voice comes over the radio. Not only the United States, but England and the Soviet Union as well have been mysteriously robbed today of their most destructive weapons. And, uh, we continue over the page and we see Batman and Green Lantern concentrating as the radio message continues. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, Japan, in Brasilia, Brazil, in Central City, USA, huge stone men have been sighted. They merely stand as if waiting, but for what? A whole world is concerned over these happenings. You've got to love the fact that, you know, the Justice League are in their headquarters and they've just got this old transistor radio that they're all sitting around listening to. Yeah, exactly. It's not like there's any sort of big TV screen or you know news computer or Justice League special computer equipment that's telling them. So they're all sort of a bit pensive and Superman is sat there you know, tapping his finger in his face and he's saying, I frankly admit, I'm concerned myself. Neither Wonder Woman nor Flash nor I could see whoever it was that stole and fired the atomic cannon. And Wonder Woman says, how do we fight what we can't see? And then Batman says, we've got to try. And the caption says, the members are divided into three teams. And that's obviously in classic Justice League of America style. And Green Lantern says, Flash, Batman and I will head for Central City. And then Superman says, while Wonder Woman, Atom and I go straight to Brasilia. And John Johns, the Martian Manhunter says... Aquaman, Green Arrow and I will make Tokyo our base of operations. And then poor Snapper, he sat there, head in hand, looking a bit glummy, thinks to himself, as per usual, I'm glued here to the pad. Fantastic. And who is behind the theft of mankind's most destructive weapons? Why have stone giants gathered at three widely scattered cities of Earth? What is the connection, if any, between these two events? And we see the entire League run into action. And the story As continues. Yeah. And the story continues on third page following. So, so it's the end of chapter one now, and the version you're reading from is mm-hmm. what's advertised underneath that last panel. It's, chapter one. It's Tootsie Rolls. Ah. So what have you because got? Because in the reprint, in the reprint, Just League of America number one one six, it's an advert for Korak, son of Tarzan. Oh, nice. Very good joke you've uh, Korak, yeah. son of Tarzan, and returns in his own magazine, a brand new series of three adventures. Watch for the all-new Korak. So that was right about the time, obviously, then, that DC took over the Burroughs stuff. So it's now Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens Part 2. As John Johns, Green Lantern, and Aquaman hurtle over the vast wastes of the Pacific Ocean, they see the city of Tokyo, and standing close by, but making no threatening move, a great stone giant. And we see exactly that. Green Arrow's in his aeroplane, with uh, Aquaman sitting behind him, and John is flying with his own power. And John's saying, where'd the stone giant come from? Green Arrow responds, why? He's just standing there, peering skyward. And Aquaman says, what's he looking for? Suddenly, a pleased smile breaks out on the craggy face. That's referring to the craggy face of the stone giant, incidentally. Yes, and not me. <laughs> yes. It's a bit disappointing. We kind of get a hint of that from the drawing. Uh, yeah, know. the panel's actually from behind the stone giant's yeah. head. Uh, we see his big <laughs> sticky out ear. So he, he, does, he does look like me. <laughs> see, Mike Sikowski, see if he just drew things a little bit better. See, what they should have done for that panel, they should have had a point of view of... Aquaman and Green Arrow looking down on the alien so that we could see it smile, couldn't we? That would have been good, yeah. But then we've also got this missile that's about to appear. So anyway, right, Aquaman, before we've decided it's he, says, there's your answer. He was expecting that nuclear warhead coming this way, right for this city. And then we see one of the missiles, very similar to the other, the other ones we've seen, sort of like bearing down towards them. And John Johns is flying up saying, I'll take care of that threat. The Martian Manhunter fills his lungs with air and expels it with super hurricane velocity. And Green Arrow says the Martian Manhunter is going to blow it off course out into space where it can't harm anyone. And sure enough, we see John use his Martian breath to blow the missile away. Then suddenly, a mighty stone hand clamps down over the face of John Johns as another hand holds him in a vice-like grip. And we see the stone giant 
grab John with its big stony hands. And John's thinking, hmm, can't exhale. Move on to page 10. Surprisingly, the Martian's vast strength is of no avail against his opponent, for his hands go right through the giant, as if the alien were a phantom. And John's thinking, how can he hold me so tightly while I can't get a grip on him? And we cut back to Aquaman and Green Arrow, and Aquaman is saying, the stone giant has cut off the Martian Manhunter's super breath. You've got to help. And Green Arrow says, no time for that. The nuclear warhead has stopped moving upward. It's going to fall on the city below. And indeed, they are both standing on the arrow plane, and Green Arrow is pointing at the missile that is heading down towards the city. So, this next panel we, is, is absolutely crazy. We're going to have to put it up in the social media so you can see it for yourself because it is mental. We have the arrow plane with a big massive jet thrust coming behind it. So obviously it's in full flight mode. Uh, we have uh, Aquaman diving off it and we have Green Arrow standing on the other wing just casually tipping out his arrows from his quiver. And he says, I have no single arrow to stop a falling missile. I must improvise, turn two arrows into one. And Aquaman says, I'll dive into the, the Sumida River, swim toward the harbour, see what I can find out. Maybe he's got the, the jet set in some sort of hover mode. But you can see the thrust at the back of it. Yeah, I know. The bottom of the I panel, know, it's crazy. The, it was, the, the thrust, the, the jet's still going to have to be firing to keep it in the air. Do you know I think? Maybe that's what it well, is. Well, that's for forward thrust. So it would be, be, if it's like a Harrier jet gun. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an aerodynamics <laughs> expert. I'm just suggesting it can't be moving because otherwise all of Ollie's arrows would be flying about all over the place. It must be sort of hovering if, if they're able to do that. Unless there's some kind of inertia thing or maybe the, the arrows are magnetic or something. It must Who be knows? because otherwise, if this was realistic, he'd be tipping his arrows out and they'd be going, whoosh. This is realistic. You he know, couldn't whoosh. stand on the way. <laughs> Exactly. They can't be moving forward. There mm. must be some kind of hover sort of situation and the engine's firing to keep them up in the air. Probably. Anyway, let's keep going with the story because we've yes. been here all day. An instant later, the ace archer sends a magnetic arrow flying upwards. With a metallic clang, it fastens itself to the shell of the atomic missile. And indeed, we see that happening. And Green Arrow then thinks to himself, I'll use a parachute arrow next. So flying skyward comes his second arrow, cleaving into the first, anchoring itself in the shaft as a silk parachute blossoms outwards. And Green Arrow's thinking it's holding. It'll slow the bombs fall, lowering it softly into the river. And indeed, yes, the parachute arrow has opened up and the missile has been intercepted and it is falling slowly to the river. And as it falls into the river, Ollie's thinking to himself, phew, it didn't go off, meaning it's a time bomb rather than a contact bomb. I'll signal the authorities to remove its fuse. That's quite a leap, isn't it? Yeah, and also, how much time have they got on it? Yeah, Ollie's as much of an expert on missiles as we are on Aerojets being able to hover. Yes. We move on to page 11, and... Far beneath the surface of the ocean, Aquaman, quickly briefed on what has taken place by his finny friends, approaches a second stone being. Yeah, and we see Arthur swimming towards one of the giants who's he's carrying a missile under his left arm and it's a sort of bazooka-style rocket launcher that he's carrying with his right arm. Ah, it looks like it's going through his shoulder. Interesting, okay. So Aquaman is thinking to himself, he's the one who fired those bombs from undersea to avoid detection. And as the bazooka-type launcher fires again, a horde of undersea creatures moves to intercept it with a net woven of tough seaweeds. So we see the fish swimming forward and Aquaman thinks to himself, they're doing exactly as I commanded them to. So the warhead slides into the net, is caught and held. Then the net is forced downward so that it acts as a sling, sending the nuclear missile speeding towards the weapon that launched it. And Aquaman thinks to himself, the stone giant's moving to intercept the bomb. Here's where I make my move. So Arthur has obviously gone to the stockpile of the other spare weapons and he's grabbed the warhead and he's, we see him thinking to himself, 
While the stone giant's attention is held by the other bomb, I'll propel this bomb at the weapon and destroy it. So he flings the missile towards the bazooka launcher. And as we move on to page 12, that has the resultant desired effect, blows it up, and Arthur is sort of blown to safety by the shockwaves. But as he rejoices in his escape, he's caught by the stone giant. And Aquaman thinks to himself, Great Neptune, just as the Martian Manhunter couldn't touch his giant foe, neither can I. Yet his stone hand holds me firmly, crushing me. So it's it's done very well that essentially the hand is holding Arthur, but he, he can move through it, but it can still keep a hold of him. It's a really interesting idea. We'll put a picture of this up on social media as well so you can see it yourself. I said this already, it's a very visual story, isn't it? You know, there's a lot more show rather than tell. This is becoming one of my favourite Justice League stories. Peter doesn't like it, though. I don't like it, no. <laughs> We'll get to that later. Anyway, meanwhile, the other stone colossus has seized both Green Arrow and the Martian Manhunter. And that's exactly what we see in this panel. The arrow plane's still flying about on its own. And you've got the other stone giants grabbing the other two heroes. Green Arrow says this looks like our finish. And John thinks we can't even defend ourselves. And then, abruptly, the alien lets go of them and they fall to the ground. Because the giants... Has disappeared. And there's a br- brilliant line here from the Martian Manhunter where he says, <laughs> Oh, this is all too much for me. John, I know exactly how you feel. And I, I might have added the O in there for effects. We then cut back to Aquaman who's on the water and, he, and he's saying, I'm not going to ask why he released me and took off. I'm just thankful he did because Aquaman's alien has disappeared as well. His fellow creature also releases Aquaman in case from sight. We then change location. Cut to a few thousand miles away Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Atom. Move towards the capital city of Brasilia in Brazil, where... We see Superman, Wonder Woman and the Atom. Wonder Woman and the Atom in Wonder Woman's jet with, with the Atom on Wonder Woman's shoulder and Superman flying separately. And Superman is pointing and saying, two stone giants just standing there. Wonder Woman says, what are they planning to do? And the Atom says, we better be ready for anything. So, next panel, from a dark cloud overhead, jagged lightning streaks downward at the city. This is interesting, actually, just quickly sort of go on a tangent. It's dark... Brazil. Uh-huh. So they're paying a little bit of lip service to the, the different time zones, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, the jagged lightning's going on. The atom says, that's the oddest lightning I ever saw, Wonder Woman. And yet there's something oddly familiar about it, as if I'd heard it described before. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a, a flashback when I read this back to Wonder Woman issue 59 issue. Of course. Where, you know, it was Earth, 2, it was Earth 2 Diana who got uh, hit by the lightning and transferred between universes in that issue. But, um, That's interesting. But, I wonder if I wonder if this lightning that we're seeing here will turn out to be similarly significant. Is that why we're covering this issue? Stay tuned, listener. <laughs> but the mystery is solved pretty much straight away because the next caption reads, As the eerie lightning hits the ground, it creates a black glass-like floor all across the city's streets. And Wonder Woman says, I remember now what I heard of it. The lightning forms a coating to protect the ground from a foreign nation's latest weapon. That's weird. Yeah, this is this is like golden age nonsense. <laughs> yeah, like, like, so she heard about a, a foreign nation using lightning to coat. Anyway, right. Then from the cloud, a strange rain begins to fall. And Wonder Woman continues, the weapon must be hidden in that cloud. It causes rain to fall. A super solvent that will dissolve everything it touches, except that protective coating on the ground. Again, that's another leap. Yeah. That, this is a bit of tell rather than show, because what information is she using to make that deduction? That irritates me slightly because I was enjoying it so far. <laughs> so we move on to, to page 14, and it's focused again on Superman as he's flying above the city and above the jet, and Superman thinks to himself, if that rain touches those buildings, they'll dissolve away until only a barren city remains. Fortunately, 
my body will be immune to the solvent. How does he know that? Hey, Superman, it's magic and kryptonite. Awesome. That's the only things that affect. So the next panel, we see Superman, and he thinks to himself, I'll use my heat vision to turn those raindrops to steam, which the wind will carry off harmlessly into the atmosphere. Yeah, and until the steam sort of cools and becomes raining again and dissolves some other poor so and so. Yeah, Superman, he probably uh, blows that away as well, so it's out into the you know stratosphere or something. Uh, meanwhile, yeah. on the ground below, Wonder Woman hurls her magic lasso upward, and she says, "I'll pull the rainmaking machine out of that cloud." But a mighty stone hand reaches down, grips Wonder Woman, holds her helpless, and that's exactly what happens. And she's going, oh, the stone being can grip me, but my hand goes right through him. And the atom, it's worth pointing out, the atom has been riding along on her shoulder this whole time. I, I do love this idea that the aliens can grab them and our heroes can move through them. Yeah, basically, they, when they try and grab not, back, not they go right through. Yeah. But equally, they can't get away. You know, we see Wonder Woman's hand, whenever she tries to touch the alien, her hand goes right through it, mm-hmm. or she can't pull out the grip. I think that's that's really interesting. I like that. While Superman continues to destroy the terrible rain, and Wonder Woman struggles in the grip of the gigantic alien... The Atom leaps into action. He jumps off on the own shoulder, thinking to himself, it's up to me to reach that cloud and shut off the machine inside it. And then there's a brilliant panel that takes up the, the full left-hand side of page 15. And what's interesting about this is the perspective, because the Atom's very close to the camera, yes. as it were, and Superman's off in the distance. So the Atom's in the foreground, and he's holding on to the lasso, which is attached to the machinery, and Superman's up on the top of the panel, firing his heat vision into the cloud again, and the Atom is thinking to himself, I see the machine now, I hope I find a way to shut it off. Inside the cloud, the Atom races along the base of the weapon. His fingers touch the controls, making him even smaller. So he's inside, there's a brilliant motion shot from shrinking down, and he thinks to himself, the best way to stop this weapon is for me to get inside. Smaller, smaller becomes the tiny titan until he finds a crack in the machine for him to enter. We see the atom moving through a very sort of jagged hole in the, in the equipment and he's saying to himself, no machine is perfect, all I had to do is find a tiny flaw in it. Then, slightly enlarging himself within the weapon, he grasps wires and pulls and tugs. And we see the atom pulling out some wires, like, he said, like the caption says, and the atom thinks to himself, there, that does it. The machine has stopped. The machine has stopped. There we go. That's a sci-fi phrase to conjure with. <laughs> Using his weight control device to make himself light as a feather, the atom drops earthward. When... The big stone giant catches the atom as well. We see All we see is a sort of little flash and the hand sort of closing and the atom thinks to himself, Ugh, caught in his clenched hand. And as we move on to page 16... The next moment, the man of steel is grabbed and held remorselessly by the other hand of the giant. And Superman thinks to himself, There's an almost Shakespearean quality to the dialogue here. <laughs> of what use is my super strength? When I have nothing on which to use it, may as well try to fight a phantom. It's the way that he qualifies it. Of what use? If he just said, oh, what use? Of what? Because there's a brilliant bit with Batman in the next chapter, similar sort of way the dialogue is sort of constructed, which we'll, we'll get to in a short moment, which is equally hilarious. So the alien stone giant has also caught Superman now. The Amazon princess also is gripped by a rock hand that prevents her from escaping. And Wonder Woman's thinking, Hera, help me. We've destroyed the weapon, but wound up helpless prisoners of these untouchable aliens. So that is all three of them, all caught by the stone Mm -hmm. giants. However... Suddenly, to the astonishment of the JLA trio, the stone giants fade away. The Atom, Superman and Wonder Woman find themselves free. And Wonder Woman says, Superman, what happened? Why did they let us go? Superman, he's as nonplussed as she is. Your guess is as good as mine, he says. And then the Atom says, they were here one moment and zowie, they were gone. I don't... Get it. That's very similar, obviously, to what happened to Aquaman and Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter's team, that all of a sudden the aliens just disappeared. Interesting. Yes, and I think Nathan's been hanging around with uh, Snapper Car 
too much because he actually used the word <laughs> Zowie, which uh, doesn't seem right. Maybe he's trying to get down with the female students at his university and he's been listening to the way that they talk. Well, maybe that was a female student he was canoeing with and not Jean Loring. It didn't actually say it was Jean. Who knows? I know. So, what of the other JLA team? Let us watch as Green Lantern, Flash and Batman approach Central City. And that's us at the end of chapter two. Now, Peter, very quickly, what's your page rounded out with? Because uh, mine is a, it's a little cartoon strip on the planet Og. It's Tootsie Roll Fudge this time, not just Tootsie Rolls. Oh, right. Interesting. Okay. So they were. But then I've got two letters pages, a science say you're wrong if you believe that page, and then we're back. Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens Part 3. We're nearly there, folks. We're nearly there. As they hurtle towards Central City, Green Lantern, Batman and the Flash gasp in horror as they see the effect of the third Earth weapon stolen by the Untouchable Aliens. And this is it. This is Batman's killer line of dialogue, which absolutely slays me. That giant, by pushing in that plunger, is causing an earthquake. <laughs> it has to be said, uh, Batman's flying in in his, his Batplane here. Uh, Flash is running in, as he usually does. And Green Lantern's doing his usual Gil Kane floaty flying in. Which is very it's cool. brilliant. That's it, exactly. It's very Gil Kane floaty. Yeah. And I love the way Green Lantern sort of was rendered for the rest of the story. But just Batman's dialogue there. That giant, <laughs> by pushing in that plunger, is causing an earthquake. Why didn't he just say, that giant is causing an earthquake by pushing in that plunger? <laughs> it's less dramatic. Um... I know. So let, let's, let's, let's have you do that again in your most Adam West voice possible. Okay, here we go. I do have a cold, you know, incidentally, but that's fine. Here we go. I know. Come on, it's good though. <laughs> Ready? Okay. That giant, by pushing in that plunger, is causing an earthquake. That's more bulldozier than Adam West, but that's fine. There we are. That's why we're here, folks. Yep, to entertain ourselves <laughs> if no one else. <laughs> so, yes, as the three goodies are flying down, there are two aliens, and Barry shouts... The buildings are shaking, going to collapse. And Green Lantern says, cracks and fissures... In the ground. From Green Lantern's power ring sparks a multitude of hands which clasp and hold the city's skyscrapers. And Green Lantern thinks to himself, I'll prevent the buildings from falling, then locate and destroy the earthquake machine. Let's count how many individual hands there are on this panel. I think it's 11. 11. He is the greatest Green Lantern of them all. 11 huge, big, light construct hands preventing skyscrapers from falling yeah. down. Superb. Whilst Green Lantern's doing that, we cut back to the Flash and Batman and they're zooming towards. Yes, and they decide to tackle the giants. So from the Batplane, the masked marvel drops at the end of a strong silken cord. Batman saying, if I ever hit that stony colossus with my fist, I'd break it. I've got to knock him out with a judo stunt. Awesome. As he lashes out, Batman finds to his amazement that his foot goes right through the seemingly solid rock creature. And that's exactly what we see. We see Batman swing directly into pretty much the eye of one of the stone giants. And he's just going passing straight through him. A hand of solid stone darts up and grabs the Gotham City hero, gripping him securely. And Batman thinks, how in the world can he hold me? Well, I can't even touch him. Batman's obviously not read any of the previous chapters. That's right. While his fellow Justice League member is held helpless, the Scarlet Speedster races around and around the other rock creature. Whilst Batman's in trouble, down on the ground, the Flash is running at great speed because we see lots of different Flashes moving at speed and the Flash is thinking to himself. With my super speed, I'll dig a deep pit with the friction of my feet into which the giant will topple. Higher and higher rises that tower of swirling dirt and sand while deeper and deeper runs the Flash. And yes, the Flash is literally running into the ground. It's brilliant. And he's thinking, this ought to be deep enough to get him out of the way. Over the page, then when the whipping dirt subsides, we see the stone giant hasn't moved. All the dirt's away from underneath him. 
and he's just floating there and Flash is thinking, huh, he's just standing there as he was when he began to run, standing on empty air. And so startled as the Crimson Comet by what has happened, he's caught by surprise and he's literally just grabbed again by the stone giants. Grab me before I could move away from him, he says. Which means that the stone giant must move very, very quickly, or Barry was very, very surprised. I think he was very surprised. I'd be yeah, very it has surprised. To be. We then cut back to Green Lantern. High in the air, Green Lantern is probing the ground for the hidden earthquake weapon. And Green Lantern is thinking to himself, point of origin of an earthquake is called the centrum. And directly above it on the surface is the epicentrum. By digging down through the epicentrum, I ought to unearth the weapon. And his ring has created a giant fort yes. that's sort of stabbing into the ground. He's successful because he finds the machinery and brings it up to the ground and smashes it with a big power-ringed hammer. And Hal thinks to himself, smashed it. And a threat to Central City. Then the Emerald Gladiator turns his attention to the stone giants who hold his fellow members. Green Lantern's flying towards them. And do you not think the alien on the left there looks a little bit like John Pertwee? Uh, yes, he does. Look forward to him appearing in our Twitter feed at some point soon. He's still Alien's own John Pertwee. And Green Lantern bears down uh, and he thinks to himself, now to willpower a ray that will force them to release Batman and Flash. But the ray basically goes right through the head of the alien. Hal thinks to himself, my powering beam went right through him without affecting him at all. We move on to page 20. Hal says what he sees. They're dropping Flash and Batman, turning towards me. Two big goggly-eyed aliens are running towards him. Fast-moving rock fingers curl around the retreating Emerald Gladiator. One of the aliens is caught him. He's caught him by the legs. And then in the same panel, we can see Batman and the Flash down on the ground. And Batman says, Green Lantern can't break free any more than we could. And Flash says, why did they switch from us to GL? And the question is soon answered by Green Lantern. And we see a close-up of Green Lantern being held in the, the grip of the alien. And Green Lantern says, they're after my power ring. They saw how I destroyed the earthquake weapon and figured they'll use it to destroy Central City. And then in the next panel, Hal's now down on the ground and we can see that one of the aliens is wearing the power ring. That's yes. mental. And Batman says, the giants are turning your ring in Central City, but nothing's happening. Green Lantern, very quick, very clever, Hal. This is such a good story for Hal, it really is. Green Lantern says... I willed the ring to remain inert for them. Batman says, I thought your ring couldn't be removed from your finger. And again, it must be said, Green Lantern does look very gilkade in this panel, doesn't he? Yes. It's very interesting. I wonder if Sikowski had quite a lot of time to draw this. You know, I've said many times in the past, not just in the podcast, but in real life, that I was never really a fan of Sikowski, but his artwork in this is pretty decent. Anyway, Green Lantern says in response to Batman, that's right. I deliberately willed the ring to leave me and go to the Giants. Now they're disappearing into wherever it is they came from, just as I planned. What can Green Lantern be thinking of to turn his ring over to his enemies this way? Since the trio of Justice League members cannot follow the Giants, let us go after them into the strange world where they live. So over the page, in the land of the Stone Giants, we see... Land of the Stone Giants, not Land of the Giants there. That would have been a different thing entirely. Ba, 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 ba. That's the Lost in Space music I'm saying. So yeah, we have two of the, the goggle-eyed Easter Island fellas and they're looking at Green Lantern's power ring and one of them is saying to himself, I've telepathed our companions to come back from the other Earth to our Earth. We must study this amazing ring, determine how it works. Do you think that's why the other aliens disappeared when they did? It may well be. simultaneous action was going on, do you think? may well be, yes. As Green Lantern has directed it to do, the power ring now secretly probes the minds of the stone giants staring down at it. And the alien guy continues, When we exploded our cobalt bomb some days ago, the human world also exploded a nuclear bomb at the same time and place. This is where we get to the gist, doesn't it? This is why we're covering this story. So now on panel 3 of page 21, the alien head guy continues, Our world is also the Earth. An Earth separated from man-Earth by a single minute of time. When those bombs exploded simultaneously, they caused a shift. 
in the time continuum. And in that panel, we see a sort of mushroom cloud and six stone scientists looking at the explosion. It's very effective, actually. It's weird because they seem to be quite close to it. But then again, they are stone giants, so maybe they are kind of like invulnerable to it. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So stone scientist guy continues to narrate. We six scientists were covered with a radioactive cobalt fallout, which somehow enabled us to peer into the Banoth land for the first time. And in this panel, we see two of the stone giants, and it looks like they're, sort of, they're kind of semi-transparent, and it looks like they're fading in on just you know a regular Earth city. And first stone giant says, The minute that has always separated our worlds is narrowing. Soon they will coincide. And the other alien says, When that happens, tremendous explosions will occur, destroying both Earths. Further study showed that only where three of our cities would merge with three cities of the race of men would these explosions occur. And we see the scientist and he's pointing at an illustration of an Earth city. And he says, since no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time, where our cities touch Central City or Tokyo or Brasilia, the result will be disastrous. And in a big close up of his googly eyes, he says, it will be like a meeting of positive and anti-positive matter. Every atom in each one of those cities will explode in a worldwide nuclear holocaust. Because we didn't dare move our cities, we had no choice but to go into the other earth and try to annihilate their city. And one of the stone giants says, they can't see us in this world because about 50 seconds still separate us. And his mate says, somehow the cobalt fallout enables us to enter their world. But our weapons won't work here. In order to destroy their cities, we'll have to steal their weapons and use them against earth. And yet you see them try to use some of their weapons there and they're just going click, 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 yeah, and just in their hands, yeah. so they're just not working. And we move on, and the scientist continues to say, as the second separating our worlds grew smaller, we found that because of our radioactive cobalt absorption, we could touch things in the man world, although nothing there could touch us. And we see the stone giant ship take away the cannon from the sky platform we saw at the very start of the story. Uh, so that's, yeah, right, cool. Because obviously the spaceship was invisible, which is why we couldn't see it and why the cannon appeared to fly. Indeed. Fantastic. So we cut back to Batman, Flash and Green Lantern and suddenly the power ring glows even more brightly and... Green Lantern says, I also commanded my ring after five minutes probing of the giant's minds to bring us into their world. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And in an instantaneous flash of thought, the power ring tells the trio everything it has learned to that point. And then... Uh, we see uh, Batman, Green Lantern and Flash uh, in front of some of the stone giants. And Batman says these giants could have saved both worlds simply by removing their own cities. But they took the inhuman way out and tried to destroy our cities instead. And Flash says we'll take care of this threat the right way by removing their cities harmlessly out of the way. And with cries of alarm, the stone beings lunge forward. And we see the stone giant shouting, no, no. Don't move our cities. Batman says, go on, Green Lantern Flash, and I'll keep these fellows busy. In this world, we can make contact with them. So Batman's feeling so a bit handy a, there. Like, before we, just quickly before we go any further, we've established at this point that this Earth is separated by, by a minute of time, and that minute of time has been narrowing, but Green Lantern's power ring is enough to bring Green Lantern, Batman and the Flash through to the, power, to, through to the other Earth. Yes. That's what's happened. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Scarlet Spacer hurtles forward like a living thunderbolt, and Flash says, I'll cause a vacuum between them, into which they will be drawn so swiftly they'll knock each other out. Wait, you don't understand? Oh! As they, as they thud together quite forcefully. That's a shame. <laughs> so, 
Moving on, and... At that same moment, Batman applies a clever wrestling hold, and we see Batman topple one of the stone giants into another one, and he says that'll even the score for the way you treated us on our world. And as the two alien scientists lump together, one of them says, we don't want to fight you, stop, listen to us. And the next panel, presuming it's the same guys, one of them says, if you don't stop, you'll destroy not only our world, but yours as well. And Batman says, it's a trick of some kind, a delaying tactic. The alien says, that isn't it at all. If our cities are destroyed or even moved out of the way, they will explode with such titanic force that they'll destroy this Earth. What are you talking about, says Flash? Long ago, when we built our cities, we constructed them in such a way that if our world were ever attacked and we were defeated, the enemy, in trying to destroy our cities, would cause the planet itself to blow up, thus avenging our defeat. When your green-garbed friend uses his ring to move our city, he'll blow up everything. Quickly, tell your friend to stop. Or he'll doom us all. Flash says, we can't. He's too far away to hear our voices. But you, you're communicating with us telepathically. Why don't you contact him? And you see Green Lantern flying off in the distance. And the alien says, we can't. Just as the range of your voice is limited, so is our ability to telepath. And Flash says, too late to stop him now. His power ring is going into action. And over the page, and we're nearly there. High above the surface of the Stone Giant's world, the power ring sends out its verdant flare. And we see Hal flying above the city. Big power ring blast taking in the whole city. And in the background, we see Batman and Flash. And Batman says, there it goes. Brace yourselves. Goodbye, Flash. And Flash says, so long, Batman. It's been great knowing you. Oh dear. Lovely. Then suddenly the JLA duo and the stone giants are thrown to the ground. This is it, says Flash. And one of the aliens cries, the world is starting to shatter. But moments later, Flash starts to get back up from the ground, as does Batman. Flash says, we're still alive. And Batman says, the Earth is still here. And so are we. One of the aliens says, look, there's your explanation. And he's pointing up because in the next panel we see Green Lantern flying down. And Flash says, what happened, Green Lantern? You didn't move the city after all. No, Flash. You see, my first impulse was to remove the city to a safe area where it would not merge with Central City. But on second thought, I realised it would be more practical to move the Earth back to where it originally was before those bomb explosions. Now a full minute separates our worlds again, and we'll always do so. And one of the aliens says, Our thanks, men of the other Earth. You did what we could not do, though we tried. And Green Lantern says, Imagine, we were both working in different ways to save our Earths, but we didn't realise it. Transported back to their own Earth by the Power Ring, Green Lantern, Flash and Batman arrive at the secret meeting place, where... Back in the cave and Snapper saying, spell it out for his cat, everyone here is from Eagersville. And Wonder Woman says, what Snapper is trying to say in his own inimitable style is, will you please tell us everything that's happened? And after the story is told, Green Arrow says, amazing, those stone giants weren't our enemies at all. Wonder Woman says they were trying to save our world. And the Atom says, and ours as well. And Aquaman continues, it just goes to show you never know. Sometimes people you think are your enemies are actually your friends when you learn the whole story. All it takes is understanding, says John Johns. Wonder Woman continues, maybe that's what our world needs. Simple understanding among men, no matter what their race, colour or creeds. Wise words, very relevant. And Snapper finishes this story up by saying, or as my crowd might put it, be men to get the caper. <laughs> Listen to the little men, and all the far outs will be in orbit. And, you know, never a truer word was spoken. The end. The end. So, we got there. JLA 15, you weren't up for doing this at all, were you? It is a parallel year, but well, it's an alternate Earth, so we should cover it. Yeah. But I think the story's awful. <laughs> Why? It's, why? Why? The, tell, tell me why. This is the first story we've actually disagreed on, I think, because you love yeah, it. it is. 
is, isn't it? But I just think, I mean, oh, I get where you're coming from with, you know, things like the Clark and Diana thing, uh, not knowing each other's identities on the Sky platform at the beginning. That's quite cool. There's some nice character moments in it. All the stuff about Green Lantern, I don't think it's looked better in, uh, in Justice League so far. Hey, it looks great in this issue. But it's it's just so convoluted. It's extra, it's extra not, convoluted. It's, 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 not, it's no more convoluted than that one we talked about in the Strange Adventures episode with the, the shrinking Earth and all that and the machine that they managed to find. And yeah, know, but, it's, no, it's nowhere near as bad as that. But a machine... <laughs> but the, the lightning thing... The lightning thing uh, yeah. that then yeah, that protects the city, but then the rain comes down. But if you've already used the lightning in the city, then that would protect the entire city. So what's the rain doing? I don't know. One tiny thing I liked, I liked the fact that Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter were on the team together. Because huh. obviously they were the first two heroes who teamed up in Brave and the Bold. Yes. Um, and that, but and I must admit, I loved... When it became a team up book. It's, it's, the entire story was worth it just from that one panel of Green Arrow standing on the, the Arrowjet wing, uh, emptying out his quiver. <laughs> That's the only thing that I think actually saved this uh, for me. Cause really, I, I mean, oh. I, you know, I mean, it's it's um essentially it's another parallel Earth. I mean, they don't talk about another universe, but it's another Earth and it's separated. So some of the terminology that we've used or, or will continue to use isn't maybe exactly the same. But I'm fascinated by the idea that um, and we should maybe we should note this and see if it comes up again mm-hmm. that Green Lantern's power ring is enough to bring him and Flash and Batman through from our Earth to this other Earth. Maybe yes. the conditions are unique. Because of the, the particular relationship they have, I was surprised by it. Because I, I'll admit I haven't read an awful lot of Silver Age Justice League stuff because it's what I always call the, the John Johns building a tape recorder out of nothing syndrome. And my good friend Steve Higgins was nice enough to to dig out and identify that John wasn't actually underwater; he was actually out in space when that was happening. Uh-huh. Um, this one, there was there wasn't really any with one bound they were free or ridiculous. It, you know, it flowed through, and Hal has never looked better. It's a really really good story where Hal has used his brain and his powers and, and save the day, rather than that other Strange Adventures story where we talked about where, you know, cuts to the bazooka getting fired in the middle of the forest. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's no cop-out ending. It feels properly developed. And obviously there wasn't too much snapper cut. And I just like the fact that basically every character got to to do a little bit. The, yeah. you know, the Atom got to go into the machine and Ollie got to fire his arrows. And throughout the whole spread of the whole 25 pages, everyone got their turn on the spotlight. And it was quite well balanced. So from that point of view, I found it very satisfying. I'm glad one of us did. So <laughs> Peter hates it. Shall we see Peter what the shall we see what the reader reaction was at the time? Oh, let's do that. Yes. Okay. So moving on to the letters page from Justice League 18. So our first letter is from Bob Butts. Bob Butts. Did I, we've 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 had a letter from him before, haven't we? I don't think we've had one from him before, but I think we will be talking about him again. He's right, quite. Maybe he's, that's what I'm thinking of. He's quite a letter hack, so I think he does pop yeah. up again. It's funny, his name reminds me that there was a, an NHL player called Bob Beers. I wonder if they ever got together and talked about alcohol and, and bottoms. Anyway, right, so the letter from Bob Butts from South Bend. Was that Indianapolis? Or Indiana. Yeah, that's, that's probably what it is. Right, so, Bob's letter. Dear editor, I never thought you could do it. You have succeeded in doing the impossible. The November issue of Justice League of America was superior beyond description. I can't find adequate words that would convey the magnitude the challenge of the untouchable aliens presented. It will live forever in the annals of comicdom, standing out amongst the greatest stories ever presented. You see, Peter, it's not just me. I think he misspelled anals, but that's fine. <laughs> How could you ever develop a plot that surpasses the high standard of previous issues with ten heroes presented within the story's framework is beyond me? Author Fox, you deserve comicdom's highest honour for that story, which is by far the best work of yours I've ever read. And believe me, I've read quite a few. The plot of this story fascinated me. 
gave me a feeling of satisfaction after my seemingly insatiable appetite for science fiction and fast-moving action was quenched. To use a phrase of Richard West's, which quite adequately describes my feelings, the story held me, as always, entranced. And you know what? I'm on, I'm on the same page with Bob all the way here. What was so especially enjoyable was the remarkable bearing the story had on the problems of today. Yeah. The final panel's Wonder Woman snapper dialogue was terrific, and if the world put this philosophy into practice, it would be a much better place in which to live. This particular panel has etched itself in my memory for life. This one panel alone made the story worthwhile. I will use it in the future as an inspiration in the never-ending fight to make our world a better place to live. Superb. What a brilliant letter. And the editorial response is, a good thing is worth repeating, and so, for the benefit of readers who have missed Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens, we repeat the highly acclaimed conclusion of this story. Wonder Woman said, That's what our world needs. Simple understanding among men, no matter what their race, colour or creed. And Snapper says... Or as my crowd might put it, beam in to get the cape or listen to the little men and all the far outs will be in orbit. And it's, again, without wanting to labour the point, here we are nearly 60 years later and nothing's really any better, is it? And the next letter is... Actually, I won't tell you who it's from until we get to the end. It says, Dear Editor, in Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens, you have come up with another top-notch story. The cover, although crowded, was superb. You also omitted word balloons, although it would not have been practical to include them in such a superb cover. However, no one is perfect. And this issue had its share of imperfections. Number one. The teaming of your heroes was disastrously handled. Team one. Green Arrow, John Johns and Aquaman simply do not go together. For one thing, there's too much green. Green Arrow's uniform, Aquaman's arms and legs and John Johns' body added to the blue-green water in the underwater scenes make one hate the colour. For another, there's not one real notable superhero in the bunch. Oh, burn. Team 2. What? He's, he's, what? <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Team 2. You teamed Superman and Wonder Woman again? Which, although it may please romantic readers, is rather boring in view of the fact that it's been done before. These objections despite the fact you threw in the atom for good measure. Team 3. You teamed up Flash and Green Lantern again. We get this combination of Flash and Green Lantern comics. Don't you think that's enough? You're telling a tall tale when you showed Flash evacuating an occupied skyscraper in one second? This was too much to take. You muffed up the ending by turning the story into a sermon. Oh, and that letter is by Paul Gambaccini, who later went on to big fame as a radio DJ personality. Very, very, very well known. I kind of disagree with him because Green Arrow's a brilliant superhero. Aquaman's a brilliant superhero. The Martian Manhunter, he's great. What's wrong with teaming up the Flash and Green Lantern? They've teamed them up, obviously, because it's popular and they're going to give their audience what they want. Anyway, the response to Paul's letter. While we try to rotate our superhero teams, it occasionally works out that certain combos are repeated more often than others. This may be due to the menace involved, the type of action called for, or perhaps certain pairs of trios work especially well together. So they're not too fussed about that. So the next letter, the last one we'll do from this issue, is from Roy Thomas, who we've mentioned before and we'll mention many, many times since. Yes. This letter is so Roy, it's unbelievable. Dear Editor, Justice League of America number 15 was so good that I feel absolutely compelled to comment in some detail on it. To begin with, as soon as I saw the cover, it immediately became one of my favourites of all time. And that includes the old-time comics as well. True, things get a little cramped when an attempt is made to portray seven superheroes in action on a cover which is smaller than those of 10 or 20 years ago. But I like them that way. And I think the arrangement of the figures on the cover was splendid. Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens was very good, and although the Dano one might be viewed as slightly weak by some, the handling by Gardner Fox of the team assignments was the best that has been done in the 18 GLA stories so far. Roy showing he's been paying attention there. 
the Superman Wonder Woman Flash episode at the beginning was better than the usual thing, not least because it gave you an excellent artist, Sikowski, no opportunity to waste himself doing myriad duplicatory super close-ups of the members seated around the table. He handled the combined meeting phase best in JLA number two, and since then has done too many close-ups. But when you turn him loose in some action scenes, he does as well as any artist could. He did some good panels of The Flash running in this issue, especially on page five, and there were some good panels also of John Johns, Superman and Batman. The main reason, in fact, I've changed my mind on the latter to the point where I hope they remain very active in the league. But it was a two-page Aquaman sequence where Sikowski really showed his stuff. The very long Batman-Flash GL sequence in which they solved the problem was a very nice departure too. All in all, this was one of the best-illustrated, best-written JLA stories. Roy Thomas. And replied to Roy... Although JLA expert Roy Thomas has been missing from these pages for some time, it's good to have him back with his illuminating views. His return is particularly timely because his analysis of the team assignments in Untouchable Alien Story makes us feel much more comfortable than we did after reading Paul Gambaccini's blast in the previous letter. <laughs> so there we are. So yes. Speaking of Roy Thomas, uh-huh. I think we'll briefly cover JLA 16. Yes, we're not going to do a full read-through of JLA issue 16 with a cover date of December 1962, on sale October the 30th, 1962. Pete's going to give us a, a summary of it. It's almost another Earth Prime story. Almost. It kind of vaguely introduces a character who makes his first proper in-panel appearance many, many years later in issue 11 of Crisis and Infinite Earth. But <laughs> Peter's going to talk us through it because it's worth noting, basically. It's not really an Earth Prime story. It's not an Earth 2 story. It's interesting. It's a little bit it's different. It's worth commenting all, on. And it's worth a mention because of who's involved, really. Yes, Cavern of the Deadly Spheres, a fantastic cover with the Justice League all trapped inside Deadly Spheres. While a mad organist, very Dr. Fibes-like, is playing. The roll call is Atom, Aquaman, Batman, Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, John John, Snapper Car, Superman and Wonder Woman. Everyone's on their way to a Justice League meeting. Wonder Woman's flying in in her invisible jet, as is Green Arrow in his arrow plane. The Atom is using his amazing ability to travel through the phone lines to basically phone himself in. And as Wonder Woman and Green Arrow come in, they see in the town below them people dancing in a very strange manner. So they land their planes, get out to investigate, and they start dancing. Wonder Woman's doing a jig. Green Arrow's doing a toy soldier march. Interesting. There's a strange music playing all around them. The Atom appears out of a telephone line and he hears the music and starts doing a Russian Cossack dance. Meanwhile, there are men coming out of the bank, armed robbers, and they're not dancing. They're stealing all the money from the bank and laughing at the Justice League as they drive off, leaving the dancing leaguers in their trail. But Green Arrow manages to free Wonder Woman's lasso, and they manage to stop the villains getting away. We then cut to another part of town where John John's Green Lantern and Batman are on their way to the Justice League meeting. They get caught up with the music and they start dancing as well. And in the background we see some war crooks successfully robbing a payroll because obviously there's no one to stop them. Fortunately, some items have fallen out of Batman's utility belt. They're silver iodide capsules that Martian Manhunter then propels into the air that causes a storm, which then manages to free the leaguers and they stop the payroll robbers. Next we have Flash, Aquaman and Superman on their way. And they come across a boat in which people are being robbed. There's the music again, and everyone's dancing, and of course the leaguers, even Superman, falls under the spell of the music. Superman manages to use his heat vision on the Flash's feet, causing him to fall over, knocking Aquaman into the ocean, who loses his compulsion to dance. 
and manages to save the day running the boat aground, stopping the music and stopping the bad guys. They then meet up with the rest of the league at the Secret Sanctuary and they all compare stories. The robbers have told them all there's a mysterious maestro who was in charge of the music that sent them out on their crime spree and was responsible for everyone being compelled to dance. Tracking the residual sound waves, uh, Superman manages to find the maestro hidden in some caves. And as they approach to take him in, uh, the pipe organ that the maestro is playing produces incredible spheres that trap each of the leaguers. Each sphere is designed for the weaknesses of the leaguer it has in prison. For example, uh, Superman's is laced with kryptonite. Batman, Wonder Woman and the Atom's uh, spheres have got glue inside them and they are stuck. They cannot move their hands or feet to escape. Green arrows are magnetised. So he can't use any of his arrows. They're all trapped inside these spheres. The maestro then leaves the cavern and blows it up, trapping the Justice League forever. And the caption reads, Can this be the end of the Justice League of America? Is the maestro's boast true that there is absolutely no escape for any of them from the trap into which he has plunged them? And it cuts to inside the secret sanctuary, where we see all the Justice League, all sitting around their table, looking at art from a comic book. And Snapper Carr snapping his finger, saying, So, there you have it, fellow members. That's the story as told and illustrated in these pages. It's called The Cavern of Deadly Spheres. The illustrated story is the work of one of our greatest fans, Jerry Thomas. This letter from him explains, For a long time he's wondered if the Justice League could ever be defeated. Eventually he came up with an idea about a villain called the Maestro. To Thomas's dismay, he realised he'd actually worked out a way in which the JLA would indeed be doomed in the cavern. And the Justice League start thinking, actually, he's right. Uh, there isn't any way we could escape from that situation. To which Snapper says, you cats don't realise how good you are. Listen to the little men. Think about it. Every villain makes a mistake. You always say the maestro must have made one. The Justice League are sitting there racking their brains. Flash says, which is quite ironic for Flash, I've never appreciated what writers and editors have to go through to come up with a story solution before. Bearing in mind, Flash is the comic book fan in the team. Atom suddenly thinks, when I came out of the telephone wire, I wouldn't have been able to hear the music because I was at microscopic size. So the leaguers put their heads together and think, hang on, we would have realised that at the time if this had been a real tale of ours and we would have prepared accordingly. So Superman says he would have gone to a nearby lead mine to cover his body in lead because it must be kryptonite that's weakening him. They would have gone into the cavern and be captured by the maestro as before, but Superman would have broken free because he was shielded by the lead in his body and freed everyone else, defeating the maestro. So yes, that is the mistake that the maestro made. That is the get-out-of-jail-free card that Jerry Thomas created. As they tell this tale to Snapper, Snapper's been writing it down, he's been doodling it out, and he says, uh, I'm not a bad artist, Wonder Woman. I'll sketch this out on a Bristol board and send it to Jerry Thomas with our compliments. Then I'll put Jerry Thomas's artwork in the souvenir room as a memento of the time the Justice League of America managed to solve the case that never happened. The end. Thanks for that, Peter. We'll now have a look at the, the letters page, which deals with the response to the Justice League of America, issue 16. Indeed, and the first letter says, Dear Editor, you turn out truly great stories so fast, I don't have time to comment on each of them as I would like. However, having read Cavern of Deadly Spheres in the December issue, I just can't let another day go without getting off a letter of comments. How can I say anything bad about a story that I felt such a part of? 
Your introduction of Jerry Thomas into the story gave me one of those rare thrills that I'll always remember. Of course, most of your readers won't know where you derived that name unless you tell them, but I think they will all agree the idea was a masterstroke of genius. Although Jerry Thomas was not pictured in the story, there are a couple of things we can learn about him from his story. First, he must be an older fan because he had Wonder Woman use her magic lasso to compel Green Arrow to stop dancing. This is an unusual property of the lasso, which the Amazon princess hasn't used for years. In my opinion, it offers many interesting possibilities, and now that a fan has reminded us all of this feature of the lasso, I hope it will be exploited often in the future. Jerry Thomas must also be an aspiring artist, like so many JLA fans, because he did an excellent job of capturing the style of the regular JLA artist. And that's letter is from Jerry Bales, a renowned letter hack and friend and correspondent and co-worker with uh, Roy Thomas, which is, yeah, funnily enough, one of the, where they got the name. Yeah, one of the founding fathers of comic book fandom. The response to Jerry's letter is the number of readers that figured out the derivation of the Jerry Thomas name in the Cavern of Deadly Spears story would astound Jerry Bales and his fellow JLA fan Roy Thomas. Let's switch quickly to the next letter for a representative example. Right, and the next letter. Dear editor, you may have printed better stories than The Cavern of Deadly Spheres, but the only one that could compare to it in uniqueness is the classic Flash of Two Worlds that appeared in the September 1961 Flash. The idea of actually putting a fan in the story was even greater. Unless I'm badly mistaken, said Jerry Thomas was a combination of two of comic fandom's more famous fans, Jerry Bales and Roy Thomas. The story structure was unusual enough in itself in that it was really two stories. One, the imaginary tale in which the JLA is doomed, and two, in real life, the JLA goes back over the story, trying to figure a plot loophole somewhat like we lowly readers. Corny or no, there's no denying that the maestro is the most ingenious villain ever featured. Other crooks should congratulate him on his ingenious trap, but as it should be, the champions of justice were again too much for the forces of evil, even though it was all imaginary. And that's from Joe Finlay in Sparta. And editorial response says... Though the two preceding laudatory letters would indicate Cavern of Deadly Spheres ranks as one of the greatest stories, its trick ending had the effect of making it one of our most controversial. Let us turn from the favourable remarks expressed by the readers above to the unfavourable viewpoint of the letter below. And let's jump straight into that. Dear Editor, over the past 21 years I have been a follower of DC magazines. The adventures of the former Justice Society of America and the present Justice League of America have been my favourites. Writer Gardner Fox can justly take a bow for constantly turning out such high-quality stories. The only complaint I have concerns the December issue and the story Cavern of Deadly Spheres. In the November issue, you stated you would try to top Challenge of the Untouchable Aliens in the follow-up December issue. I feel you failed to do so. Untouchable Aliens was, in my opinion, the best JLA story ever published. <laughs> while, yes. while Deadly Spheres is perhaps the poorest. As far as plots go, Deadly Spheres was as good or better than most. What disappointed me was the so-called trick ending. You overreached yourselves to be different. The story could have been carried to a successful conclusion without interruption and the explanation given to the maestro in flashback form. The story was ruined by having it turn out to be a case that never happened. It's a shame that the ending didn't live up to the beginning. And that's from Eugene Henderson from San Diego. And the editorial response to Eugene's letter 
we anticipated that when we exploded our trick-ending bomb in Cavern of Deadly Spheres that there would be some reader fallout. But so many readers supported our experiment that we feel it was worthwhile. And there's another letter with someone else explaining a bit of disappointment. Do you know what? I was not offended by Cavern of the Deadly Spheres. You know, it just shows that they were trying to mix things up, do something different. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. I did like the whole bait and switch because, to be honest... The first half of it is quite pedestrian, almost, especially compared to the previous mm. issue, which I still say is very convoluted. Uh, but th- th- this is very straightforward by the numbers, not really a mystery to work out. And then suddenly, oh, it's deadly trap. Turn the page, and it's like, wow, pulled the rug out from under us. It's not what we expected at all. Although it's basically the characters sitting about talking. It's quite interesting for a character point of view, and I do enjoy it a lot. And the actual use of Jerry Thomas is genius i love it it's great it's basically acknowledging fandom in a really interesting way and interacting in a really yeah, interesting way the thing that struck me was obviously um <laughs> superman quoting himself going to a nearby lead mine <laughs> <laughs> health, and, health and safety and then barry painting over it that i mean that's that's hilarious frankly it's i mean i can see the point of some of the letters page guys i mean it could have been the most generic ordinary justice league story ever so by doing that little twist a story created by one of the fans it's it's doing something new it's doing something different it's mixing yeah. it up Absolutely. And I suppose there's always going to be people that don't like stories that mix things up. It's maybe the equivalent of something like, I don't know, Doctor Who's Loving Monsters mm-hmm. or or Blink, you know, that sort of thing. When they depart from the normal sort of straightforward narrative and do something different. There's yeah. always going to be people that are resistant to that. But it's the sort of thing that you have to do to stop it becoming stale. Yes. So there we are. So that's what we think about those stories. But what do you think about these stories? You can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. We might read out your comments and give you a shout out on the show. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Earth 2 Podcast or on Twitter at podcast underscore Earth 2. If you've enjoyed our chat today, then please subscribe to us and you won't miss future episodes. We're on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, we're pretty much everywhere you can find uh, podcasts. So yes, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you listen to. Yeah, so- and if you're able to, please do leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts. That's fantastic. Thanks for listening, obviously. Yes, thanks for joining us on our journey. And we'll talk to you next time on The Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. This is a great story, honestly. Oh, dear God.